0: Hello, how are you? I'm well, how are you? We're back to talk again. Yes, we are. So we concluded last time um, with the thought that um, everyone who considers themselves um, a religious leader or clergy, if you will, I'm going to use that term broadly across the spectrum of Um, as it fits into our previous conversation, that they do not always um, have a personal theology or a belief that actually aligns with what they teach, preach, or um, whatever their tradition um, allows them or expects them to do as clergy. Um, So that's where we're going to pick up today is talking about clergy cognitive dissonance.
1: Yeah. um, That was, I think the last thing I said was that was um, kind of shocking to me when I found out um, that, um, well, number one, I, I wasn't the only clergy person who was having these issues, but when I, um, Discovered the magnitude of the uh, of the situation. That was what shocked me more than anything.
0: So tell me tell me something. When you say the magnitude, what give me some parameters or some scope to okay, understand the, what you? Okay, the you say the that.
1: clearest way I can give you a um, a magnitude of just how prevalent this is. There are actually support groups for pastors and, uh, teachers who are, you know, trying to make a, a graceful exit from the pulpit without upsetting the apple cart, uh, too much. I mean, these groups go so far as to, um, you know, be anonymous and, um, you know, help these, uh, men and women, uh, you know, who don't believe anymore um you know exit the pulpit um with a a, you know some degree of integrity intact um you know so that's that's how bad the problem is is well and go ahead
0: and when you um when you bring it into that perspective um it makes me think about probably in the thanks to social media that just puts everything out there. Um, There have been uh, quite a few cases of clergy who have overdosed, committed suicide, um, some who have literally just walked away from their congregations. Um, And I actually... Um, know someone, you know, it's kind of the six degrees of separation. I know this person, know them well enough to speak to them by name if I saw them, um, because we have several mutual friends that, um, was in a very public based on, you know, the fact that everything's out there on the web kind of scenario and just did not back down and say, you know what, I'm not doing this anymore, um. And it was, you know, it was in the in light of a lot of scandal that, you know, had came up from issues in the in his person. And I often think about, um, you know, how people can get very invested in something for whatever reason. They may have a gift or a talent, and you know, someone assumes that it just should be this in the context of height you know people always looked at my height and they always declared that I should be doing this or I should be doing that because I was so Mm -hmm. tall Um, and you know never any indication of my interest my ability (laughs) you know it was just you're tall this would fit Mm -hmm. for you Um, and I think a lot of times when people are good public speakers or um, good debaters, instead of them being pushed towards politics or being pushed towards teaching um, or, you know, a multitude of other things, they get pushed to um, something that's faith-based. And, and I don't know that that's every story. I think some of the people do actually feel that they are called. Um, but when you bring it a full circle and say that there are a lot of people that are doing um, some type of G form of leadership and they really in their personal conviction um, don't um, see it that way or maybe they've changed their personal theology over the years or whatever the case may be. Mm-hmm. Uh, talk about the battle of backpedaling after you've gotten so far in,
1: yeah, uh, that's that's um, that's you, you probably uh, probably actually did hit the nail on the on the head there. You know, there are um, you know a lot of pastors and teachers, and this is not just um, in the Christian church, mind you. This is a goes over a broad spectrum of religion that that hits just about every theistic and non theistic religion around the world. And we're seeing this uh phenomenon, but in the uh, the one thing that they all have in common is that you know you have men and women who um, you know at one time in their life they were invested uh, invested heavily in their in their faith tradition, and for a variety of reasons um you know the evolution of their thought life has led them to um to to not believe anymore uh just to give you an example um there's one uh, gentleman his name is uh, Jerry DeWitt he was a uh, pentecostal uh pastor from Louisiana who um you know he was uh, very well known in pentecostal circles uh public speaker writer all of that and um he got to a point where he really had a problem with the doctrine of hell and he wrestled with it, prayed with it, all of that. And the more he struggled with it, the more, um, you know, the, for lack of a better way of putting the more, the sweater came unraveled and it just got to a point where he the could not deal with, the cognitive dissonance that's created by a loving God who would send anyone to hell for, you know, uh, forever, simply because of um, the way that they're created. Um,
0: Now, when you say hell, let's, let's take a a second. Mm -hmm. Theologically, because there is a distinction between the, the Hebraic Sheol and the, New Testament right. hades um, that that is the Greek interpretation so we so so what formulates is a very enmeshed concept of concepts if you will that becomes what is all tied into the descriptive uh, visions in mm-hmm. revelations to create the way we um have been taught if you will about hell right so when you say that he struggled with that where is he in that um not just in that i won't say in that historical timeline but in those enmeshed well, concepts
1: um, not to not to insult pentecostals a whole lot uh or at all but yeah really um, <laughs> but um you know uh jerry, uh, jerry dewitt his you know, the way he described it his his denomination of uh, Pentecostal is the United Pentecostal and I did a little bit of research they are very literal when it comes to their understanding of the Bible so their conception of hell was um, pretty much a place of fire brimstone and torture for all eternity and that's what he would so
0: Gehenna or
1: yeah Gehenna would be the closest thing that we could okay. yeah and that's what he you know he couldn't wrap it rap.
0: which is more like a trash dump but exactly okay, yeah yeah, yeah
1: and uh so um you know, Sorry. It's okay that's 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 where he was and that's what he was he couldn't wrap his head around and from there it just kind of spiraled um you know down for him and he got to the point to where um you know he was you know he was preaching and teaching but he wasn't preaching and teaching that excuse me anymore and then you know, he he, he uh, got to the point where he realized that he was being dishonest and just said, you know what, I'm done. And he was in a position where he could make a graceful exit out of the uh, out of the pulpit. And um, when when he discovered that, uh, you know, there were other ministers like him, he was he actually formed the support group to uh, help uh, ministers who were in the same positions he is transition out because um it is a battle um you you know looking from the outside you think well why don't why don't they just leave i mean you know you don't believe anymore, just step out well it's a little bit more complicated than that it's it's it is a matter, matter a matter of integrity and honesty but it's also a matter of okay you know um the only skill i have is attached to what i do sunday after sunday what am i going to do some of them uh some of these or,
0: or sense of identity or sense of
1: identity right you know yeah. you know um you know and you go and you become the brand you become well it 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 goes a little bit deeper than that because some of these people are some, in some pretty precarious situations i mean you've got um you know Uh, you're the support for your family you've got a sick child and your health insurance is tied to your ministry now you're you you know you don't believe anymore what do you do do you leave the ministry and forfeit your health health insurance and let your child go or do you stay in you know
0: because you don't have a skill set that would let you go work for a fortune 500 exactly you know, find another mechanism of being an entrepreneur. That's the only thing you've ever done, right. and so then they're in this pigeonhole of, um,
1: right. So,
0: yeah, that's that's, and that's a sad place because I think it's sad for anyone's conviction to be economically based. I, I think that's the one thing that I do appreciate about some of the um churches that you know they take a vow of poverty so if you're doing this this is what you really right. need to do cuz um you're giving up everything and everybody cuz this is what you and there there's something to be said for that even though I, that's not that's not mm-hmm. my lane um but there's something to be said for that because i see a lot of people um who answer the call, not just because they have a gift and they have a calling, but they don't see any other outlet for that gift or for that calling, or just the pressure of people pushing them. And I always say, if you push someone to do something that their heart is not in, you set everybody up to be miserable. Um, I've watched, Um, a lot of people get married because they be married to to take on their calling as clergy and they weren't ready or they weren't you know in the right relationship or whatever the case may be and then suddenly they have this horrible tag-along situation you know Mm -hmm. make it appear like what it's Mm -hmm. not so that you can get done what you're trying to get done and when you talk about the clergy cognitive dissonance I can't help but think about the um the wives that have gotten sucked tags because when when a man which and we'll stick with that for now because that's traditionally the the frame uh, when a man takes on his quote unquote calling and takes on you know some form of being a clergy, then he's expected unless he's in you know a Catholic church or somewhere where they don't get married he's expected to be married, and so this woman becomes part of this package, whether she wants to be whether she has the um passion for it or the interest in it. I have to a lot of first ladies, if you will, over the years and amazed at how many of them said, I didn't want to do this.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: He felt like this was the road he was on and I just, I loved him and somehow I got drug into this. And then I've also talked to women who said in hindsight, I realized he just needed to have this off the checklist and I was the first thing that said yes. And so I was stuck with somebody who didn't want to be with me. So, because he needed to have this on his checklist to do what he needed. it's just so many, um, so many ways the cognitive dissonance plays out um, when people really don't have a heart and a passion and the belief um, that has to go with being right. clergy.
1: Yeah, it, it, uh, being a clergy is definitely one of those um, one of those uh, vocations, and callings that uh, if if you're if you're not totally invested in you know, my advice is don't get in it at all because you know you you're going to end up in a position where um, you know a lot of people are looking up to you as far as leadership is concerned, and if you get to a point where um, you know you want to for whatever reason just pack up and go uh, that can cause a lot of damage um, not only to the people who look out to you but the people people closest to you like your family and you know your wives and children so forth and so on and uh, many of the stories that I've come across where you know you've had these pastors who uh, come to a point where they don't believe anymore it's uh it's kind of a mixed bag the response of their of their spouse and family. I mean, excuse me, you have some pastors whose wives and family are, you know, they're right behind the the, the pastor involved in, you know, they're supportive of the ministry, they're involved in the ministry, and uh they are firm believers and then all of a sudden, you know, uh he comes to a point in his life where he does not believe anymore. And uh, there have been some who, you know, wives divorce them, children are estranged, and they're just left alone, you know. Um, and then you have some who, like you said, you know, this is just something that, you know, the wives and family are, they're not, you know, invested in the ministry. They're just there as moral support or whatever. And when the pastor gets to point to where You know, he doesn't believe or she doesn't believe anymore. Um, You know, it's a big relief to the family, and they're, you know, breathing a sigh of relief because they don't have to pretend Mm. that they're vested in something that they've never been vested in uh, from the start.
0: And what comes to mind when you say that is if it, I, I don't know if it's on Netflix, but I'm sure it's in a $5 bin somewhere in a Walmart. So apostle. Um, I can't think of his name. He's always in a lot of good stuff. Um, but um, it's this—he's wholeheartedly invested and wholeheartedly believes in his calling. But his wife is not in that same space, and it basically um, almost ruins him. Um, it—it really in—it just check it out if you ever get get a um. I wish I could think of his name, but um, if you could ever get a chance to see The Apostle, it's an old gosh, Bo Derek was in it, so how does that make it? Um, it's probably at least 20
1: years old at this point. Yeah, you're talking about uh, the movie with Robert Duvall and Farrah Foster. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I saw that movie. Yes, I know the one you're referring to
0: yeah and I, that's that's a good um example of what happens when um a man is fully invested and fil- fully fills it but his wife is not um is not as invested. She gets tired. She she has the, the cognitive dissonance. She gets tired of, you know, trying to live a certain way and she wants to live another way. And it just totally almost ruins him. And I think speaking of which, we might need to go back and give some clarity to the concept of cognitive dissonance and not assume that everybody gets what that is.
1: Right.
0: Um, because we've kind of, ta- we've we're kind of like half a mile down the road um, and we might need to clarify cognitive dissonance.
1: Yeah, it's uh, despite the, the despite the big words, it's um, it's a real easy concept to um, and um, it's a state of having just inconsistent thoughts or beliefs. Um, you know, particularly uh, when it comes to deeply held beliefs. So you feel cognitive dissonance whenever contradictory information comes into contact with a deeply held belief so uh, give me an example um, let's say you have a friend or a relative who you've known all of your life and that person has always been good to you and um, you know everybody else around them they've you know always been nice supportive you know shirt off your shirt off your back kind of people. And then let's say that person dies and um, you know, someone comes uh, to the wake or the funeral or whatever, or to the repast and they start saying all this stuff that doesn't go with what you've known about this person. You know, maybe this person, you know, is talking about how the, you know, he was cheat, a lie, steal. Um, you know, that's when you have cognitive dissonance because you have one view of this person in your mind, and now you have someone saying, No, this, that's not the entire story. Okay. That's what happens when you, when you, that's what you feel uh, when you have cognitive dissonance. Now you have to bring those two together and try to figure out well, which one is true. And also you have to uh, deal with the, um possibility that both are true. Maybe this person was one thing to you and just this other completely different person to uh, this other person. Um, and that's cognitive dissonance in a nutshell when it comes to religion, you know, uh, or other deeply held beliefs, and we'll just stick with religion since we're talking about that, you know you've you, you learned all of these wonderful glowing beautiful things about your religion uh, from your family and your faith tradition and your culture and you grow up believing all of these wonderful things but when you scratch below the surface you start to find that those glowing and beautiful and wonderful things aren't the entire story and it starts to play on your mind and you have a conflict and you have a choice you know do you accept the contradictory information, or do you just stick with what you've always known and it causes uh, a conflict and it does bring you to a point of decision about, you know, do I go with one or the other? Do I try to marry? Um, Do I just step back until some other information comes back that, um, you know, I could, I can, you know, uh, deal with, you know, it, it causes you to become more uncertain than what you previously were to a point where you might not be certain at all uh, anymore. So that's my understanding of cognitive dissonance.
0: Okay, um, and it is it is very much that internal wrestle um, that happens when you have to enmesh two very contradictory concepts into a real life uh, response um or thought process even so um, what we're talking about when when people have invested in um, the b- belief system or as we've already discussed that you know it may be a family investment not just the individual because um, as you know that, you know if, mm-hmm. if if ministry is what we do it's what we, do right. uh, whether we mean to or not um, it's it's what we do um, and I've I also am very fascinated to follow the children of a lot of you know prominent clergy and I think that is the the empathetic side of me I can always kind of feel their journey if you will um, having, you know, grown up in a family of prominence, people don't get that if you, if you've not lived, uh, under the microscope of the public, Mm -hmm. um, people just don't get what that's like. Um, because the, you you know, you can't walk in those shoes unless you walk in those shoes. Right. And so a lot of times I'm often fascinated, um, to see where the children of a lot of clergy, prominent clergy land. For example, um, T.D. Jakes has, I think seven or eight or nine children. He has a lot of kids. I'm not sure exactly how many, but I think out of all of them, he has one daughter who is kind of made her name in ministry. And she talks about her own journey of, you know, that, that struggle with, is this what I'm really supposed to do? And she actually is very, very good at what she does. She actually walks in her calling. she uses her gifts. And, 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 um, I find it interesting that all of the other children are kind of making their attempt to stay out of, you know, the light, if you will, which um for me i know for a lot of years th- that was just my natural inclination mm-hmm. I, there's enough attention that i didn't ask for why would i go looking for attention right. <laughs> you know um sure. why and i i still struggle with that i it's my gifts or with my calling but i struggle with enjoying not having any attention and I think you would you're probably one of the few people that gets what I mean when I say that. Um, I kinda enjoy some anonymity. It yeah.
1: Pretty cool. Yeah, I think um that that's really kinda that you that, as you said, it's kinda hard to do when you're uh, when you're grow up a, a preacher's kid, particularly if you're uh one of your parents is a prominent minister that's uh, constantly in the public eye. Everybody's everybody's wondering, you know, are you going to follow in your parents' footsteps and.
0: Or a politician in the newspaper every two days. Exactly.
1: (laughs) You know, and, you know, I, I experienced that, um, a lot (laughs) in my life growing up. And, um, I have to say that, uh, uh, if I'm honest, you know, reflecting back on it, that had a lot to do with, um, my decision to actually go into the ministry, you know, or feeling the call is there is this constant, you know, um, God's going to do great things and all this kind of talk around me. And, you know, you hear that enough times and you start to believe it and uh, you come to a point where, you know, I guess this is the time for me to start doing it. And, uh, you know, that I think that type of, conversation around a child of a pastor is really unfair to the to the child. Um, you know Mm,
0: wow because it it puts a lot But how is it a boy I don't I
1: I think I I don't know. I mean if if I had remained in the ministry and had a child, I think if anyone had said that to my child, I would have turned to my child and said, look, you can be any damn thing you want. You don't have to be what I am. Uh, You know, you decide for yourself what it is you want to do with your life. If it's to follow my footsteps, it's not going to be because someone told you that's what you're supposed to do. Um, You have these gifts. You can express them any way you want to. Don't let me or anyone else force you into something that you don't want to do. I think that's the way you get over it. Is that you know the parent, the, the preacher that, with their kids have to have that type of conversation. They're like you don't have to do what I do.
0: Um, you know, it's interesting that you would say that because as you're as you're saying that, I think about um, how my dad responded um, when I you know went to him and told him I felt like I was called to the mm-hmm. ministry. And I think it was. It, I think it was for him, the heaviness of knowing how a female is treated. You know, the door is open if mm-hmm. you're a male. It's just an open door. You don't really have to have a skill or a talent or an ability. Just hey, if we can get you to dress right and hold the microphone right, come on down. Right. Um, and, whereas for a female. Um, I, I would dare say, I I think women that go into the ministry have to truly embrace their call just because of the journey um, into a, this is a man's world kind of approach mm-hmm. um, that is taken towards ministry. And I think for my dad, when he sat down and talked to me, it, it was just this kind of, um I think he really tried to, to make peace with this is my daughter and I will um, affirm her any way necessary as a father. And that w- it was not until then that he started really talking to me about um, my grandmother and my great grandmother and um, things you know, the women in ministry in my family, I think I just saw them as the people they were in my life and not, you know, having this quote unquote, because, you know, when our family gets together, we're just family. We get around chicken and macaroni and cheese like everybody else. Right. Um, you know, we don't necessarily become, you know, people are not necessarily referred to by their public titles, you know, right. but it's, um, I think probably, you know, Doc and Rick close as anything gets. And even that, it seems almost in jest. Right. Um, but that's just, you know, how we are as a family. Everybody has a nickname and we walk in that and you don't think anything of it. But when he started really talking to me and my aunts started talking to me, women in, in ministry and how actually I come from You know, when nobody had ever pushed that on me, it was kind of like once I got to that place, then they started saying, oh, well, by the way, let me tell you some stuff that might be helpful. And I think that has been more affirming to me than if they had, you know, from the time I could understand Spoken language had been saying, "Well, you know this, and you know that, and you're probably this, and you're probably that." I never got that. I think I probably would have pushed against it and really, um, not known what to do with it. Um, right. So i I think the way um, the parents have that cognitive dissonance about their children is something that's that's really interesting. That you explain that you you know you would have this empathy towards your child if your child felt like they were called but I also want to challenge that and say you probably would have a different type of tension just simply because we have a lot of people that are called into uh, leadership across a spectrum in our family you know we have um, we have leaders in corporate in political in religious I mean um, so if your child comes to you with, you know, these pieces saying, I feel like, um, I think that would, that could also lead to cognitive
1: difficulty. Right.
0: um, because there is this struggle. And like I said, I think for my dad, it was, oh my goodness, I have a daughter, you know, if she was a son, we, we could build her, you know, a building and, and nobody would ever say it would question anything if it was a male child, but girl right (laughs) i have a girl and she's talking about she's called to the
1: ministry (laughs) right 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 yeah it's it's definitely different for for um women who feel like they're called into the ministry because i think um those are the true modern day apostle pauls where they're constantly having to defend. Um, oh Lord, I think you just blasphemed. Uh-huh. I think you just blasphemed.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, I mean, Somebody somewhere is throwing a Bible down as we speak. I mean, because I you just I blasphemed. You know, I, don't,
1: I don't know of any men who have to. I mean, you, you said it perfectly. I don't think I know of any men who have to defend their uh, defend their ministry. I mean, you know, you you you, you literally have. Guys who start their ministries on street corners and uh, no one bats an eye, but you know, a woman wants to just, you know, preach and everybody is all up in a tizzy. Um, And and even
0: use the word preach is very, very recent. I mean, growing hmm.
1: up in Pentecostal circles
0: where it's very literal, um, you know, women were allowed to um, extol. (laughs) um, give their testimony and teach. Mm -hmm. Um, as a matter of fact, when I was chaplain in the hospital and, you know, I walked up to this family, it's amazing how people hold their theology when their relatives dying. You know, I walked up to this family and I introduced myself as the chaplain and this man said to me, well, um, you know, if you're testimony (laughs) and I thought, you know, your people are dying, and this is this is your concern right now. Exactly.
1: No? Exactly. I'm just saying. Yeah.
0: Um. It's very interesting. Very very interesting.
1: Yeah, but as I said, you know, you know, um, it's just it's it's amazing and sad that you know people, no matter who they are, who feel like they have this calling, particularly women, have to stand up and not only preach, but at the same time defend simply speaking about something that is said on a daily basis by people who have different plumbing, you know, um, and the only reason they get flack is because they're women. I mean, I can't think of anything more ridiculous. Uh, you know, it's, it's the same message. It's just coming from a different part of the species what i mean does the message change because you're a woman <laughs> you know um, is it is it less true because a woman says it I, I don't get well i get it but i don't see why in the 20 21st century um people still holding such Ridiculous ideas about who can and can't, you know, say certain things because you know it's a woman. Yeah, you know, that that just blows my mind.
0: So, do you think there is some cognitive dissonance where that is concerned? Because I find it really interesting um, that you know, con- you know, I think it, my case is is you know just what it is. My my dad is always affirming. Um, mm-hmm. you know, whenever I was doing the right thing. but I, I often look at clergy who are adamant of taking adamants on women in ministry. And it's amazing how they backpedal that when someone that's close to them <laughs> gets called into the ministry and acknowledges their call. and then suddenly, uh, we'll see what uh see what the Lord can do, with, uh, <laughs> yeah. and and, yeah. and 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 you know the the see who who is we to um question? <laughs> oh, but you 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 know you put your foot down, and it was hardcore, but now suddenly, yeah. um, I, I always find that really interesting to see yeah. how the navigation of um. And that's cognitive dissonance in in itself.
1: Um, yeah, yeah, it is. I mean, it, it it's it, um, that that's kind of how it happened, and with my own personal experience, my father was that way for the longest, and then my mother felt like she was called to preach, and all of a sudden, you know, that that same thing that just went through, you know, I started hearing from my dad that I'm holding, you know holding back, you know, biting my tongue, trying to keep from laughing. Um, but it, 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 it's not just that, but it's also and some other things that uh, are important too. I mean, I remember, um, you know, back growing up, listening to, um, you know, older pastors talk about, you know, divorce and remarriage and so on and so on. Uh, how adamant they were against it and then all of a sudden they started going through divorce and getting remarried their children did and now it's just
0: they can find another scripture now they can find another he's like yeah they can find another scripture say well you know. oh look the the bible said if the unbeliever right. oh yes, now right. you find that one it's been there all mm-hmm. this time but you couldn't find it before
1: oh okay. right You know, and it, you know, it goes through that that cognitive dissonance once they, you know, reality bites them in the behind is real. I mean, it's not just those two things, but it's a whole host of things, you know, how to deal with their children and, you know, uh, the other people that are involved in their lives, you know, once reality hits them and um, they realize that. Taking such a hard stance will cause more damage than it will cause good. Um, You know, that's a hard thing to turn away from and take a hard stance. I mean, some some people.
0: Repeat that last statement again. Will cause more what? What Will will cause cause more.
1: more I mean, having such a hard stance will cause more damage than it will cause good.
0: So are you implying personal theology needs to have some fluidity?
1: No, what I'm saying is this, is that when it comes to deeply held personal beliefs, whether they be religious, political, or otherwise, there is a principle that I think that um, everyone needs to keep in mind, and that's a principle of do no harm, is mm. if your deeply held belief, when put to the to the test, causes more harm than good, then maybe you need to set it to the side and go with a belief that's going to do more good than it is going to do damage. Um, and I know that's going to be hard for so a lot I of people. So I can't
0: help but say to who and whom, you know, well, damage e- to who and whom.
1: Either yourself or someone else, you know. Um, if If your belief is going to damage a relationship with your child, you have to ask yourself, what's more important to you, your belief or your relationship with your child? You know, if your belief is going to wreck your marriage, what's more important to you, your beliefs or your marriage? I mean, you told this uh, man or this woman that you would love them uh, until death do you part, and through sickness and health in good times and bad times, well, here's some bad times caused by your belief. What's that promise worth now? If a disagreement about beliefs is going to cause the emotional damage that comes with divorce. You know, here's your child who comes from you and your, and your spouse. Hopefully you uh, had this child out of love. If you did, you know, your commitment to your child, what's more important to you, your beliefs or your commitment to your child, you know? Um, and it's, 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 that's what I mean by do no harm, you know, What's more important to you, your beliefs or your relationship, having a good relationship with those that you love um, or that uh, that mean a lot to you? Um, I think, you know, that, that's a serious consideration. It may come to a point where, you know, doing damage uh, is the only option. You know, doing good may just enable some behave, poor behavior on the other person's part. And so that damage is necessary to keep that person from harming themselves. Uh,
0: but That's interesting that you put it in, those, in that frame um, because, you know, I did my, um, my second master's at the Pentecostal Theological Seminary, which is uh, affiliated with the Church of God, mm-hmm. which is probably more conservative and literal um, in their interpretation of the text than the Church of God in Christ. And you know, I brought up in in marriage, um, in marriage counseling class or whatever it's called, okay? counseling marriages and families or whatever. And I and we were discussing divorce, and you know, I thought it very interesting. We were discussing it because I thought they were going to take a you know, don't do it ever, <laughs> you know, kind of approach because that's a little bit more in line with their theology. And the instructor said um, he he used the scripture um you know if the unbeliever goes free and he said but he also said as a footnote to that he said there are two lives at stake and he said at any point when someone's life is in danger mm-hmm. both lives are in danger right and i said well do you mean that literally cuz you know I, i'm i'm analytical so I'm I you know do you mean that literally or do you mean that figuratively <laughs> and he said he said no he said because a lot of times holding the marriage together that's that's never been together or that it's broken mm-hmm. will break both people he said there's no way that collateral damage happens only on one side right if it is destroying one person, it is destroying both people, regardless of whether they see that or not. And I thought, how empathetic. Mm -hmm. I just didn't know that there was that much empathy rolling around in, you know, such a um, very literal uh, interpretation of the theology but I thought it was a good response because from a counseling standpoint you do see that you see the the collateral damage is not just going to happen on one as you just got t-boned you know it's it is the damage is all over the place
1: right um,
0: and so when you're talking about taking these hardcore stances and then having to navigate real life situations, um, very literal. And I think for them to try to take things into um, a perspective of real human interaction does cause a lot of cognitive dissonance, not just when it comes to the calling of ministry, but things that minister as counseling um, can can really put them in a pickle as far as standing on one side of what they see as a necessity and what they believe as a theological biblical stance. Right. Um, and I use biblical just because we're Christians, but I think it can happen in any religion. Um, you have these two sides of something. And you have to figure out how to to make them meet, um, in real life,
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, because real life does happen.
1: Yeah, yeah it does. And um, you know, when I was when I was in the ministry, that happened. You know, several times not with just people who were going through relationship problems, but you know, um, I think the you know. It hurts me even to think about it, but when I was in Kentucky, uh, working was a small inner city church, probably about, you know, no more than 200, 300 people involved in the congregation. Um, we had a older lady who was suffering from diabetes and, uh, for, um, for several Sundays, she wasn't there. And when she, um, when she showed up again, she, uh was in this um, uh, wheelchair and she had had um, part of her leg amputated because of diabetes. And uh, she asked the, uh, during the altar call, she asked pastor to come and pray for her. And I, I tell you what, I have never seen a pastor, so flummoxed as to what to pray for, mm. you know. Um, and what made matters worse is, you know, she'd be there for a couple of Sundays and then she'd come back. And each time she came back, there was another body part missing, you know, and each time she would come and ask pastor <laughs> to pray for him, pray for, her, and it just got harder and harder. Now here is, you know, this pastor who's Sunday day in and day out preaching about, you know, miracles, so on and so on. And then he has someone in his own congregation who's praying for one. Um, and every time he prays, she's gone and comes back with another body part missing. If that doesn't cause cognitive dissonance, I don't know what, and I don't know if any other type of situation, um, you know, real life situation will buck up against personal theology other than that. When you believe one thing, or at least you say you believe one thing and are hundred percent certain of it, but when reality hits, it doesn't play out that way.
0: So I have to kind of interject um, here with with just what's on my mind. And that is um, in this wrestle or whatever you would call this uh, form of cognitive dissonance, Um, we've talked about several manifestations of it from several sides but as for me and and I'll let you respond from your perspective but for me I always have to think the the limitations that we have in our being and our understanding because of course I have you know like several leading questions based on the story you know Was she taking care of herself? Did she have some type of family support? What was her diet? You know, what were other medical underlying, you know, I have like all of this stuff ashing around in my head. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, of course, as you say, for the clergy who's standing there and she's asking for prayer and she keeps coming back and body parts are missing. And so for me, I always think of our limitations are not able to understand that God is not limited Mm -hmm. it's just that we also have to deal with um, theodicy this unknown understanding of what God is doing Mm -hmm. in you know a set of circumstances at a certain time and I think for a lot of clergy that does kind of dissonance is to say I'm not sure if I understand what God is doing and therefore I question the overarching truth of, of God's identity and ability and power. Um, I'll let you speak to that because I, my frame is, is, is pretty solid. I think, Mm
1: -hmm. you know,
0: I'm pretty solid on, you know, um, there are so many variables in human interaction, and, and who are we to truly understand, um, you know, how and why God does what God right. allows, or whatever the case may be. But your frame is a little different, so I'm going to give you that space.
1: Well, <clears throat> yeah, I, I think, um, um, but I think we need to define a term first again, um, okay, theodicy. You and I know what it means, but will your listeners know what that means? Only if they talk to Sister Google. Only if they Sister Google. Okay, so we'll let them look it up. I can't say that
0: because I there are. I think some of my listeners run the spectrum um, in their um, theological understanding and, and education. So,
1: but go ahead. Let's get a working okay. definition. Um, we well, I handle cognitive business. I'll let you handle theodicy.
0: Um. So theodicy would be um, in a totally good creation, why is there bad? Or um, it is this if tension between what seems to appear to be a solid versus contradictory facts to that solid. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, how do you Eat vegetables and fruit for 40 years, and then still get cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, those are questions of theodicy. Um, you know, for me personally, um, when I was running four miles a day and eating steamed vegetables, only to find out that I had to have my gallbladder removed, and <laughs> so I'm not running ever again. You know, because for me, I was like, "How's this? How is this happening?" You know, how is this happening when I'm doing what I'm supposed to do? Why do I have some part of my body that's failing? Right. Um, Those are those are the theological frames, if you will, of theodicy. You know, if all of creation is good, why are there roaches? Why are there bees? Why are there tsunamis and hurricanes? If Mm -hmm. all of creation is good. Um, you know, it is this kind of counter um, question to the ultimate assumption that we make about the good versus the evil. What is defined as good? What is defined as evil? And how does that take on a perspective in any given situation? Right. I don't know that I narrowed it down enough other than to say it is the good and evil as we perceive them.
1: Right. Yeah, Um, The way I keep theodicy straight in my head is um, there's always the question of why do bad things happen to good people? You know, um, if there is God that um, loves us and wants our protection and safety, why do bad things happen to good people? And that's how I keep theodicy, theodicy straight in my head. Another way is to explain it or describe the way that you have is, you know, if creation is good, why do we have all of these so called evil things that happen in such a quote, on close quote, quote, good world? Um, so when I was, when I was a believer, um, I had all of these. That sounds like the first line in a book. Yeah, when I was a believer, once upon a time. Uh, but no, when I was. Yeah, a, I like that. When, when I, you know, in a galaxy far, far away.
0: <laughs> you just got a whole bucket full of them now, right? Yeah,
1: exactly. Um, you know, I had all, I had, you know, I had all these answers for, for, for the you know, we live in a fallen world, um, so forth and so on. And, you know, a lot of the suffering that um, people have, they bring on themselves and so forth and so on. And to some degree that, that those things are true, but, there's always those others where it's not a personal choice, uh, and living in a fallen world um, doesn't explain why, if there's a loving God who seeks our pro- our protection, doesn't fix it, um, you know. And I think, for me, uh, believe it or not, one of my one of the books that I actually enjoy reading in the Bible is the Book of Job because. It attempts to answer this question directly, with the best answer I think any believer can give. Um, and the answer to the question of theodicy is, I don't know. Um, mm. you, know. you know what? I, I'm I'm gonna have to let. While
0: we're on this topic of theodicy, mm-hmm. I have to, and you mentioned Job because now you've hit like. One of those things that really irritates me—that I always hear preached—and when it comes to Job, uh-huh. and that is the end of Job's story. And they always say,
1: and he had another
0: children, and everything was great.
1: Yeah. And I'm yeah, going. Yeah, yeah. No. Are you no. kidding me? <laughs> it, yeah, it's almost like that's Job, not Job, how that works because it, no. It yeah, it's almost like Job dropped his ice cream cone, and God said, "Oh, here's another one, Job." yeah, and and I
0: think if if you've ever had a child, a puppy, a pet rock, you get that there is never an equal replacement.
1: Right. Never exactly. an exactly. equal
0: replacement. And there's always this space um, of of mourning, of, you know, loss, that just, you know, it just is not fixed. Like you say, it's not like, okay, here's another ice cream cone. Hush, now we'll walk away. Let the ants have that one that's on the ground. Mm-hmm. It, I always, I, I, and I use, I, I, I don't like to use the word hate, but I hate to hear because it gives, it sets people up, if you will, for cognitive dissonance in their own life. Right. Mm-hmm. To wonder why the replacement doesn't ever replace what it was supposed to replace. It may be different. It may be new. It may be, um, it may be even better. It may be more peaceable. It may be, but there's still always going to be this sense of loss Mm -hmm. and the, you know, it's, you just don't, that just troubles me. Like, I want to. I can sit through so much in, right. you know, in twisted theology and 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 the homiletics that go along with mm-hmm. it, but that's one of the places where I want to go. Excuse me.
1: Exactly. <laughs> that well, you know. What the the way I look at at Job now, um, the way it reads to me, and I could, you know, I'm no biblical scholar expert but just the way it reads to me now the way it comes across is I think Job was the book of Job story of Job is um is religious satire you just can't do right <laughs> no I can't you just can't I can't do right I think you just can't I mean I'm Yes, I have an agenda, but I'm actually being serious. I I, I read the book of. The book. I'm
0: being serious with my agenda. Said every man yeah. ever, but okay, go ahead. But no, I,
1: I seriously think is actually serious. It it comes across to me as seriously as a as, as satire because it asks this very serious question about you know why do good people suffer evil, and it gives the most ridiculous answers. I mean, they're they're laughable if you think about them.
0: Well, I can see you. I can I can kind of see how you would take that because of the interaction, the the interaction with Job's
1: friends. Well, no, it's not. It's not just his friends. It's from. from, It almost seems kind of Shakespearean. Yeah. Well, from start to finish, I mean, it's just. I mean, just the whole scenario itself it's almost like the writer says, look, don't take this too seriously. I'm addressing answers to this question that are popular in my time. And he just, you know, he just makes them so absurd that he's like, yeah, who would ever think something like that as an answer to a serious question? And, um, you know, if you, if you think about it, from, you know, like I said, from start to finish, this, this this the writer can't be serious about what he's saying. You know, and that's why I say, once you get to the end of Job, the only answer that you really get from that book about the question of, of uh, you know, why do good people suffer is, I don't know. You know, that's just a part of living in, in our world is that people suffer uh, no matter who they are. But it'll all be later. It'll all be better later. Well, not even that It's all, it'll all be better later. It's just that they suffer. You know, that's just the human condition living on planet Earth is, um, you know, you're going to suffer. And, you know, I think it was, correct me if I'm wrong, it was uh, uh, Solomon who said, you know, man born of woman is full of days and those days are full of trouble. He understood that, you know, suffering is not something that can be avoided. It's just going to happen no matter who you are. Um, and I think that's the, you know, the point of, of Job is, you know, you can ask all of these, these questions about why did this happen to me, you know, am I being punished, did I do something wrong, so on and so on, and there, there really is no answer to that question, it's not that things are going to get better in the future, uh, nothing, it's just if you're a human being on this planet, you're, or anywhere in the universe, there's going to be suffering attached to your life no matter who you are. Um, and I think that um, in a very satirical way, the writer uh, attacks that question in the book of Job. And I, could, I can give you at least, a, I can give you several points in the story why I think that. Um, you know, start at the very beginning, you know, you start off with the question why do good people suffer and the writer gives you this story about how Satan and God have this bet going on about who, can, you know, how. Yeah,
0: I think that that's
1: that's pretty interesting. I mean, I mean, think about it. In all of your all of my years as a minister, and all your years as you know a counselor, how many times have you said to someone, you know, I think you're going through this problem because God and Satan are wagering on if you're going to be faithful or not that never that's never an answer that <laughs> it's the most ridiculous answer that anyone can give but there it is I mean I think if somebody gave me
0: that is a like you know what why are we
1: even having this you know yeah oh so so God and Satan called heads or tails exactly. But this is, you know, this is why I say that Job, to me, comes across as satire. That cannot be an answer <laughs> to the reason why good people, because God, you know, God's and Satan are testing you to see what, if you're going to be faithful or, or curse curse him and die. You know,
0: yeah, that, that to me is very interesting, too, because, at, you know, at the point you have God pointing out, hey, try this guy right here. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the reason interesting to me because um, God is omniscient and so mm-hmm. God knows Job's character. Um, mm-hmm. I have heard this preached and taught that oh, it was not about anything else. This was about Job's arrogance. Job's arrogance is the problem, mm-hmm. and I'm going. Job arrogant is is that really? So that should mean that like every preacher ever mm-hmm. should, you know, lose everything. I, it, it's, I just I'm just always fascinated how we find answers where I'm like, I don't see that. And I'll just let people walk with it because I don't want to disturb anybody's peace or anything right. And, um, for you to say satire. I think does give it a whole other spin. Um, I do think, in some ways, it seems quite Shakespearean. Which, of course, um, Shakespeare's messages are hidden in all of these uh, character formations, very similar to what we see in Job. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you have these float in, float out. Like, where did where did this person come from? I mean, right. How? what what do you have to do with anything? <laughs> oh, but you showed up with an opinion. <laughs> mm-hmm. Much like real life. <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, I, I I think I'm going to have to struggle with the, the satire of Job because I think I see your angle. Um, theologically, I think Job is a hard, um, hard Book to do justice um, in sermon formulation. Mm-hmm. I, I'm always amazed at the angles people take when they're um, teaching and preaching Job because I'm like, it's like stretching taffy.
1: Yeah, it's... yeah. I mean, Job is Job is a hard is a hard book to to. Um to teach or preach from, particularly if you've never really sat down and closely read uh, the the dialogue that goes on between the characters. Um, but I think if people you know, take their time and just sort of do what everybody told me, if you just push aside all the things you've ever heard about Job and read it and let the text speak for itself. Mm. There is a, there's a treasure of wisdom there. Uh, One of the things that, that strikes me is the going back to the conversation between Satan and God is, you know, Satan accuses Job of, you know, the only, he says the only reason that Job uh, maintains this relationship with you is because of all of this stuff that you've given him. I bet if you take the stuff away, he'll curse you and die. And God says, okay, take away all the stuff and let's see what he does. Well, Satan takes away all the stuff and Job maintains his faith. Now, if you look and listen, to the, listen to the conversation, what the writer is asking you to do is to look at your own motivations for being in a relationship with God. And the question is very serious. If God had nothing to offer you, gave you absolutely nothing, would you still be in a relationship with Him? And
0: I think that is always the question. Yeah. Um, I think, and that's why I, I, I say that um, as much as I don't think it's my journey per se, then mm-hmm. those that take of poverty and celibacy and all of that jazz like I think it's a true indicator of do you really believe this is your journey right really believe um because and especially in a day that we have like today when clergy have I mean they get jets they get you know
1: cars and jets and well um, that was that was my very next point is it really that question really does speak to um a a portion of modern christianity in which god is your you know your personal financier and you know cosmic genie um you know jo-
0: are you blaspheming again? yes
1: i am i'm, I'm, <sighs> I'm blaspheming and you know, this, these are the thoughts of a crazed apostate. But you know, um, I, this is a question that
0: apostate. They... Can we have a working definition? Because it sounds like a dirty word. It is
1: a dirty word. It's someone who's left the faith. Okay. Yeah. It's, when you know, it's someone—it's a dirty word. But these are mad <laughs> ramblings of an apostate. You know. Um, but. It, it really does speak to a portion of modern Christianity is like, you know, you've got these people running around preaching that, you know, God wants to give you every good thing and, you know, jets, planes, big houses, cars, lots of money. And, um, you know, here's Job who has all that taken away and he remains faithful. And it, it really, you know, pokes at the modern Christian who believes that, you know, God is there to make them rich and famous and wealthy and says, well, what if God isn't offering that at all?
0: Yeah, that, that was always my, um, that was why I always thought the, uh, prosperity gospel was a bunch of hash. Right. Um, because it was selling this high that was not grounded in anybody's reality. Um, uh, mm-hmm. It was. It just seemed to. Um, it just seemed to be an easy road in, and I, I won't name prominent preachers, but there's one that's on TV every day, <laughs> on every channel, and I just look at him and I think he's a candy salesman. Right. I mean, truly, the truest theology. Um, does do what the book of Job does. It, it looks in the face of unanswered questions, of hard life situations, and finds the stability to maintain the course. Right. Um, and I think that is the resilience um, of true belief in something is that ability to maintain that resilience. Um, and and I do see how you see the satire in Job, because it does read very, to me, it, it just seems like it was something from Shakespeare that was kind of dumped over into the Bible by the way it's written. Mm-hmm. Um, but theologically, um, I think it does no matter how many people try to preach their way out of what's actually literally there in the text. I think when it comes to handling hard portions of text like Job, um, that will pull the cognitive dissonance out of a clergy that has not really found their own personal theology. I think it it will push them to try to make an answer fit um, and not just take the text for what the text says, because you do um, a disservice to the text when you try to force fit an answer yeah. text that's and, just not there.
1: And, and see that was, I know that this is gonna, particularly what we're talking about is gonna sound like I'm going against the grain. I really am, but that was no, that was not my, you. Yeah, that was, that was my that was my whole problem with theology and apologetics to begin with is that it seemed like a great deal of it was trying to answer unanswerable questions you know and instead of just being intellectually honest and saying these are just things that we don't know it tried to force an answer where there there, there isn't one that we can that we can use um, and so when people start talking about you know theology and apologetics um you know my answer is always well I'm, I'm not really interested in in theology or apologetics for the for those reasons what i'm more interested in is what the text actually says not someone's interpretation of it you know
0: i think we do i think we do more justice to the development of our own personal theology where we own the fact that we are never going to, just God knows. And in that, um, we are always going to be seeking after a better understanding, more knowledge of who God is and how God fits into our real life scenarios. Because in that space, you leave room to just own that we don't have all the answers and we do, um, as the Bible says, we do see through a glass darkly. Mm -hmm. You know, um, in the other scripture that comes in, you know, God uses the foolish to confound the wise. You know, the more you think you know, Mm -hmm. sometimes the the less sense it sounds like you have. (laughs) Right. Um, And I think you know, for those clergy that do have that struggle, um, I hope that we do find ways to help them to, with dignity and grace, uh, transition to something that is more authentic because they don't do the um, they don't do any religion. As, and of course, as a Christian, I any good um when they attempt to walk and teach and represent something that they don't necessarily believe or um Mm. that they they're not ready to apologetically defend um it comes out in their sermons i can always tell when i'm listening to a sermon from somebody who believes nothing of what they're saying it's so right like you can tell Mm. in their sermon (laughs) that they're just you know, hoping not to swallow a fish bone eating a fish. Yeah. Right. Um, Yeah.
1: Yeah. I'm, um. I think we have, I'm sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, I'm a, I'm really not a fan of apologetics.
0: (laughs) How would I have not ever guessed that?
1: I'm really not. And it's, it goes back to what I, I said, um. I don't know if it was in the last uh, recording that we did or the one before, but, you know, I've I've listened to a lot of popular um, apologists, Christian and otherwise. And yeah, I really have a hard time with the idea of defending claims about a religion or uh, the scriptures or god and defending the book or the god itself Mm -hmm. and i'll I'll give you an example of what i mean um if you listen to any christian apologetics uh, apologists okay you take any of their arguments you can divorce them from christianity and put them in a religion like Islam and they work. Okay, Any of their arguments, point by point, you can take them except for the ones that drill down on like the divinity of Christ and the trinity, so on so on. But you take all of their arguments for defending the, the existence of God and you can take those same arguments and plug them into Islam and they work. You can take them and plug them into Islam and they work. You can actually take the apologetics of any religion and use it to defend the existence of creator aliens and they work. And That's that's the problem that I have with apologetics, is they don't get us anywhere. All right,
0: so I think this is going to be where we start off next time because you're not going to give me a headache today. Um... (laughs) So, um, on our next talk, I think we'll start off with apologetics and the overarching question Does God need defending? Mm -hmm. Um, And we'll take it from there on the next go round. And today's topic has been clergy cognitive dissonance. And as expected, we walked all the way around it and then down the street and back. and if you have any comments or questions, you can email um, theologically at gmail.com.
1: Well, since you since you're dropping emails, can can I drop mine too? Sure. <laughs> um, my uh, email where I address these issues is no good reason to believe at gmail.com. <laughs> I didn't do that's, it, really no, that, that's all one word no good reason to believe at gmail.com
0: theologically analytical at gmail.com and what is it
1: no good reason to believe at gmail.com
0: well as you all can see we did grow up together and came to two very different conclusions (laughs) so All right, we'll call it a day for today and we'll look forward to our next talk. Have a good one.
1: Bye.